welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. What a blessed day. What a, what a glorious day to be in the Lord's house as we open our Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and today we'll, we will become acquainted uh, with the man named Stephen. We were first introduced to him uh, uh, in verse 3. He was one of seven men who were described as having a good reputation He was full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and uh, therefore chosen for the uh, important responsibility of uh, delivering food to uh, impoverished widows in his day. Uh, Verse uh, verse 5, furthermore, restates that uh, Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So uh, a good testimony he is. Our passage today, which begins in verse 7, it will begin to outline a a biography of Stephen, and and we are going to be fascinated with what we find about his Christian life. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to see that uh, he will become the first disciple who lived for Christ and then also had to die for Christ. He is the first martyr of the Christian church, uh, yet he does not die before leaving uh, a significant impact behind for the church, uh, an enormous impact with his life. So today is a part one of what will be a two-week series I've titled, The Life and Death of Stephen. We'll also find that he is a man of uh, immense scriptural knowledge. Uh, as we read, we will read his entire sermon next week, all of chapter 7. We'll read all of that together next Sunday. It is the longest sermon that is recorded in the book of Acts, uh, wherein Stephen, he, he magnificently outlines the history of the nation of Israel, uh, from Abraham himself, Father Abraham, uh, all the way up until the dedication of the temple uh, by King Solomon. Uh, that, that is a time in which the, the glory of the Lord Yahweh uh, filled the temple, the entire temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And uh, he preaches this sermon, and it is only after this mention of Solomon dedicating the temple when uh, Stephen informs the high priest and the entire nation uh, that is before him there that uh, well, the presence of the Lord no longer dwells in there. Wow. Boy, boy that, that is tough. That is tough to hear. Stephen gives a textbook sermon on the principle of Ichabod. You remember Ichabod from the Old Testament? Uh, That was a name from the time of the prophet Samuel, uh, which means the glory of God has departed Israel. You'll find that in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 22. Uh, The name Ichabod literally means no glory. 
No glory in the temple. And uh, this is the charge that lands Stephen in hot water. It began when he he started informing his Greek-speaking counterparts in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he told them that the period of temple worship is, is finished. That fact came through loud and clear in our earlier scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 10, stating that ever since Jesus Christ offered himself as a one-time sacrifice for all sins, God no longer accepts those priests' offerings for sacrifice in Israel. God doesn't accept any other sacrifice other than his son. And, uh, well, by the way, uh, Stephen is going to tack on this in chapter 7, stating that uh, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And to hear that assertion, uh, for a Jew to hear that assertion, that Jerusalem's magnificent temple could now just as well be converted into a public storage. It's just too much for their ears to bear. Yet what Stephen tells them is factual. And in a very short period of time, uh, just as Jesus had told his disciples, uh, the temple will be completely destroyed. Utterly destroyed, uh, and uh, not one single stone will be left upon another. Temple sacrifice, it, it served as only a shadow of what was to come. It was, it was a reflection of what would occur in Christ. Uh, but the temple, temple sacrifice, is, it's finished. It's finished. And in perfect fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 4, uh, Since the day of Pentecost, God has been building an entirely different type of temple. It's it's not a physical temple sitting in Jerusalem. It is a temple that is built uh, not by might, not by power, uh, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Uh, The third temple predicted by Zechariah, it is Christ's church. It's it's the church indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We are part of it. We aren't alone by ourselves. it. Uh, But uh, the Apostle Paul asked the Corinthian church, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, that that temple reference there isn't speaking. It's it's plural in the you. The Greek is plural uh, when he says you are a temple of God. He's not saying you are a temple of God. He's saying y'all are a temple of God together. The entire church. So collectively indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Christians have become the temple of God. And of course, Paul goes on to say, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You're holy. 
You are God's temple. He, he dwells in you by his spirit. He, his presence is with us in spirit. You know, scripture couldn't be any clearer. Couldn't be any clearer. So as I read our passage, there is partial truth to the charge against Stephen that uh, Jesus has altered certain customs as to how God is to be worshipped. God is approached and worshipped only through the one-time atonement for sin in his Son. The covering of our sin is in Christ. And after Calvary, after the cross, as he died uh, on Calvary's mountain, there remains no other sacrifice for sin. What would you offer God in place of his Son? But it is not true that Stephen speaks against Moses or against God or against the law. Um, We'll only get a start on his biography today, a brief start, uh, but um, we'll continue next week. As I read from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, we should also notice that even a a great many of the priests have now joined this ever-expanding church And uh, that, no doubt, has become very bothersome to the high priest himself. Uh, Stokes the flames. It's leading up to a violent confrontation that we will see uh, next Sunday. In verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, uh, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, uh, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place, referring to the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on Stephen, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Well, be, to begin with, we, uh, it, it's important to recognize how verse 7 is placed here as a hinge verse, a pivotal verse. Uh, all modern translations, I would include the New King James Bible, uh, present verse 7 as a, as a single sentence, as a single paragraph by itself. It's a statement, it's a powerful statement. And, and this is because it is clearly transitional in time. The church is going through a transition. Uh, It provides a summary outlining just this tremendous growth of the church. 
explosive growth, continuous growth that we have seen, growth that has filled Jerusalem up with its teaching. Well, that is entirely going to change with the death of Stephen. The church had grown so large, it was even beginning to swallow up a great many of the Levitical priests who had embraced Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's Messiah. Think of this. Think of this if you were the head priest, the high priest, and uh, you had an increasing number of Levitical priests who would no longer take part in the temple sacrifices. They wouldn't participate any longer. And, and there's no indication that this, this enormous growth will slow down. It's, it's a growth that can only be attributed to the Holy Spirit. That's the only explanation there could be. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon Israel. And it is essential to realize that uh, this remains the Holy Spirit's outpouring at this time, exclusively upon Jews. You know, the first Gentile, Cornelius, he won't come around until chapter 10. He's not going to get grafted into the church for several more years. And after baptizing his household, Cornelius' household, Peter, he's going to have to answer for that. When he gets back to the church, uh, there's going to be a severe dissent among the Jewish church uh, for allowing that to even happen. Peter's going to have to give an explanation, and he does. In fact, Peter's going to have to offer a defense for his even entering that Gentile's house. And even after this, it won't be until years later in chapter 14 uh, when the church will at the Jerusalem council enter into a contentious debate as to whether you need to be circumcised to become a Christian. That's years off into the future. Uh, of course, all of the Gentiles were very glad that they took away that requirement. But previously, the church was entirely Jewish, inclusive of of only a few Gentile proselytes. When a Gentile had, had proselyted, had become a proselyte, they would change over and they would be recognized as a Jew. So, so it's inclusive of only Jews who had been converted to Judaism. Well, you think, oh, oh, why would any of this matter? Well, it actually matters quite a lot. And it's because Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 16, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel through Joel, God's promise to pour out his Holy Spirit upon Israel uh, during a period that the church remained almost militantly Jewish. Only Jewish. And recognizing the Spirit's pouring out, well, it is essential to proper ecclesiology and also eschatology today. Uh, ecclesiology simply means the practice of the church, how the church functions. Uh, eschatology refers to 
how the end of times unfolds. Very important. Romans 1 verse 16 states, the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. And then also the Greek, all who will believe. And I have clarified over over past years, uh, the gospel was to the Jew first. That that is a chronological statement. It's, It's not a priority of ethnicity today. Uh, no, it isn't that Jews had an ethnic superiority. No, the Spirit was poured out on the Jews first. That same Spirit was later poured out on the Gentiles, the, the Greeks who, Paul says, were grafted in to the church. And following the inclusion of the Gentiles, the, the New Testament goes to extraordinary lengths. Extraordinary lengths to ensure, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 11, for instance, uh, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been completely broken down. God today makes no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's Romans 10 verse 12. No distinction. Many different places. Repeatedly, no distinction. And having the same faith as Abraham, uh, he, Abraham, has become in a sense the spiritual father of us all who exercise faith. All of us together in the church by faith. There are not to be Jewish churches and Gentile churches. Ephesians 2 uh, As you look at that chapter, the two groups, referring to Jew and Gentile, have been both reconciled in one body to God through the cross. For through him we both, speaking Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit, one spirit to the Father. We are both God's household, Paul writes. We are together a new spiritual building, Not a physical building this time, a spiritual building, a temple of God. Uh, And Paul writes, we are being fitted together, both Jew and Gentile, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We have to understand, through Christ, we, we are all Jew or Greek, one church. It's essential to ecclesiology. The the exclusively Jewish church that began in the first chapters of Acts has been eclipsed. Making, really making any uniquely messianic Jewish movement, uniquely messianic Jew church, Today, that would be inherently flawed that you would separate according to ethnicity purposely. Um, Additionally flawed, actually, actually this is critically flawed, is an eschatology or or an end times beliefs that uh, suggests the Holy Spirit has not and will not get poured out upon ethnic Jews until Christ returns. Some of you have probably heard that. that. That idea correctly supposes, or proposes, 
that the church has since its inception always been a Gentile movement, which it hasn't. But we have observed since Pentecost, what we have seen, it's not a little outpouring, folks. Not a little outpouring of the Holy Spirit among the Jews. Nor was the church originally a Gentile church. Rather, the first six chapters of Acts substantiate a massive, a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Jews first. In fact, ever since this juncture in verse 7, throughout the roughly 2,000 years of church history, uh, the church age, I would argue that there has never since occurred a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit than what happened early on among the Jews. Nothing rivals what happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out on Jerusalem. From here on out, uh, things are changing in Acts. That flourishing church is going to get dispersed among the nations. And and after the Gentiles are finally grafted in, uh, we are going to see that throughout the remainder of Acts in the New Testament, uh, Gentiles experience, by comparison, smaller outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, and and what we have observed up to this point, it is never duplicated again. This first section of Acts has been such a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the Sanhedrin has remained powerless to impede the expansion of this church. It's a hinge point. It's a hinge point. Uh, The stoning of Stephen is going to change all of that. From this point on, the church that once thrived unimpeded in Jerusalem is going to become a persecuted and a scattered church. Find that in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Uh, They're going to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, uh, just as just as Jesus had promised his disciples in Acts 1 verse 8, that uh, you will first be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to Samaria, and even to the outermost parts of the earth. God had this all planned out. doesn't catch our Lord by surprise. And it will be over a period of years that the early church transitions into what Jesus described as the times of the Gentiles. They become a church today uh, that we see that is predominantly Gentile. Even though there are still Jews coming to faith in Christ today. And the church today includes Jews and Greeks, Scripture says, without distinction. Therefore, uh, the idea that God is still waiting until Christ returns to pour out His Holy Spirit upon the Jews, uh, or that it would be a good thing to rebuild the Jerusalem temple and start hoisting up dead animal carcasses to God in sacrifice, uh, that idea cannot be reconciled to Scripture. Can't be. That the Spirit's working through the Jews is future, 
That, that idea, that is a, a pretty recent innovation by a theologian in the 1800s named John Nelson Darby. He came up with that innovation around the year 1830 or so uh, that um, says that the Jews are going to get a second go-around at Pentecost. Going to be another time. Uh, to, to tell Jews that, that after Christ returns, they're going to uh, get a second chance at salvation, that would be a complete disservice to their souls. Stephen has been telling the Jews, your opportunity is today. And we have a whole book of the Bible called, or it's titled, To the Hebrews. It's written to warn Jews unequivocally that there is no going back to the temple sacrifices. Ever. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. And Hebrews 10 verse 29 says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? There's no going back. Before the book of Hebrews was written, Stephen's testimony will assure the Jew uh, that the temple and its sacrificial system, they are finished. They are finished once for all with the sacrifice of God's Son. Those things that the, the grand temple, Stephen will tell them, uh, they served only as a shadow of the substance that must be found in Jesus Christ. And he has informed the Jews that, that your, your temple, it's going to be destroyed because God does not accept your priestly sacrifices anymore. In fact, through sending a Roman general named Titus uh, in the year 70 A.D., God will finally put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's prophecy from Daniel 9, verse 27. They don't want to accept, the Jew doesn't want to accept the son. God says, I'll take this whole thing down block by block, and there will not be one stone left upon another. And the first martyr of the church is Stephen. He's filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. He gives his life. He, he dies a violent death, telling his fellow Israelites that you too must be filled with the Spirit and believe in Jesus Christ right now because there remains no other sacrifice than Christ, and your temple is going to be destroyed. That's a summary. That's a summary. It, it is interesting that some who identify as Christian today want to rebuild the temple and restore animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. And they state it is because they think doing so that it is key 
to God pouring out his Holy Spirit in Israel. That, that's a tragic irony. Such people have missed the point. When Christ returns, he is not going to be pouring out his spirit. He's going to be pouring out something else. And the story of Stephen assures Christians that, that we will also, like him, suffer affliction. We're going to enter God's kingdom through many tribulations, all the way up until the day that Christ is revealed. Uh, Stephen is going to learn a little bit about tribulation here in just a, just a few sentences. And our relief will not come until the day of the Lord when Christ returns. On that day we will be raptured. We will be caught up when the Lord appears. It's the same day, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's what happens on the day of the Lord. Do you think that Stephen would, would ever tell his countrymen or that we would? You know, just hold off. Don't think about trusting in Jesus Christ today. You've got time to think about it. No. No, there's, there's no time. There's no time for the Jew, no time for the Greek. You must believe today. The outpouring that will occur when Christ returns is not the Holy Spirit, but bowls of wrath that will be poured out on everyone left behind. You know, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, they ought to write a movie about that. Yeah. Talking about all those who are left behind. That series is flawed in so many ways. No second chance for Kirk Cameron. You got to believe today. So what, what we believe about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and, and the eventual uniting of the Gentiles along with the Jews into one body through the cross, it affects our ecclesiology. It affects how the church works. And our eschatology, uh, an urgency to reach both Jew and Gentile today, uh, no second chances at a second Pentecost. There are a few things about Stephen, other things that, uh, as a person, that we should talk about before commemorating the Lord's Supper. Again, this will be brief, and we'll follow up next Sunday with a fuller outline of Stephen's message. Uh, Stephen, verse 8, he was full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, other passages describe him as full of the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. That, that, that means that all of his faculties are controlled by God the Spirit. Paul contrasts being filled with the Spirit against drunkenness in Ephesians 5, verse 18. If you've ever observed someone who is drunk on wine, you know it affects every part of their being. Their speech is slurred. Their decisions are impaired. They can't physically function or walk in a normal manner. That's given as a contrast, not a simile. 
Being filled with the Spirit is completely opposite of that. Everything the person thinks, everything the person speaks, and everything he or she physically does is well-ordered and under control of God. In addition, every word a person filled with the Spirit says is fully going to conform to the Word of God. That's someone filled with the Spirit. For an example, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, we are told that he was led by the Spirit and that he walked by the Spirit. And every reply that Jesus made to Satan was in the form of quotations from Scripture. Satan tempted him, uh, So you're hungry? Command these stones to... Turn to bread. Satisfy your flesh, Satan says. And Jesus responds by quoting the word of God. That's being filled with the Spirit. Pointing out the word of God, a saying, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is filled with the Spirit. It's a rational man a godly man, a holy man, a sanctified man, uh, Stephen is. So full of the spirit and of wisdom assures us uh, all of Stephen's behavior and his speech conformed to the holy word of God. Everything was compliant. He committed so much of God's word to memory. uh, We are going to see uh, in his sermon next week that Stephen is revealed as truly a man of God's word. When he preaches, it's full of the word of God. Secondly, he's a a man of great compassion, incredible compassion, more more compassion than we normally have. Um, It's not only evident in the fact that he was trusted to deliver deliver food to the Greek-speaking widows, or Hellenistic widows, they're called, uh, but that he used those opportunities to witness to his old friends. In verse 9, we're told some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and argued with Stephen. Here we find that Stephen returned to witness to his Greek-speaking neighborhoods. Each of those regions that are listed are, they're from Greek regions. The synagogue of of the freemen would have been made up of Jews who were released released from slavery in foreign countries and then returned to Jerusalem to start a Greek-speaking synagogue. You know, we remember from our previous study, uh, that revealed that Stephen and six other men in verses 1 through 6, they were also of Greek origin. Every one of their names is Greek. They are selected from the the Greek uh, element of the church to serve the Greek widows. It was their people. The Greek section of town was their people. And I imagine, Stephen, it is very possible, perhaps even likely, that Stephen was perhaps even a member of this synagogue before he came to faith in Christ. 
He was part of that Greek community. If so, that would imply that he returned to his old Greek-speaking friends in his old neighborhood so that he could preach Christ to them. You know, you look at verse 9 and you see in the New American Standard, it says he, they argued. Um, it's better translated debate or, uh, or perhaps dispute. Some translations use dispute uh, over the facts about Jesus. Uh, the word implies a reasonable de- debate. It, the Greek doesn't imply uh, a contentious debate, at, to, an argument to start. Uh, that comes after they don't win the argument. Stephen did not approach them to win an argument. He approached to win them to Christ. That was his purpose. He wanted to see his other friends trust in Jesus Christ as a Savior. Verse 10 reveals that uh, they were unable to cope. It's the wisdom and and the spirit with which he was speaking. Ultimately, Stephen knew his Bible better than they did. And they could not handle the truth. You ever run into family members or close friends where you go and you show them what the Bible says and they just can't, they just can't accept that Jesus is in the only way. If he's the only way, uh, what would happen to all the people who've never heard about him? Is always protest. We're always running to protest against the Bible, and they they could not handle the wisdom with which with which Stephen was speaking. But the fact remains that after coming to faith in Christ, Stephen did not abandon those whom he knew, but he returned to them to lay out a reasoned debate about Jesus Christ as Savior. That reveals a man of compassion. Probably more compassion than most of us have been willing to extend. In fact, later when they are stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that look like? Stephen has been conformed to the image of his Lord. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's a man full of compassion. Full of compassion. You know, (laughs) we don't have to raise hands, but many of us have found it very easy to give up on those whom we once knew people from our past, we may want to reconsider that because Stephen did not give up on his until his dying breath. All the way to the end. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He is a man who lived full of the Spirit. He was full of scriptural knowledge full of compassion, overflowing with compassion. I'm going to add one more just for today and leave the close of chapter 6. There's still some things left there. Uh, We'll leave that until our opening for chapter 7 
next week. Uh, but one more thing that we must add today is Stephen was a man full of courage, filled with courage. He, he knew that being outspoken for Christ and against the temple, that, that was going to get him in trouble. He, he was not unawares of how culturally important the temple and its sacrifices were to that nation. Every feast, every festival, every gathering, the whole nation of Israel centered around that temple. The size and the prominence of that structure sitting in Jerusalem it dwarfed the surrounding city. It's massive. Everything pointed towards the temple for the Jew. But it was just a shadow. Sure, it's a place where the Christians are gathering now. It's, it's useful as a, as a covering from the elements. It's really the only place in Jerusalem you could get together with that large of a group. It's functional as a building but it's not functional for atoning sin any longer. To even imply you're speaking against the temple, it was not merely swimming upstream for Stephen. It was challenging an entire nation to exchange that for a Savior. If you have families who are immersed in false religion, cults, sacramentalism. You think it's tough talking to them. Think about yourself telling a Jew that, or a priest that their sacrifices are no longer acceptable. Wow, that takes courage. And Stephen entered this conflict knowing that he knew it could cost him his life. Next Sunday, he'll respond to the council uh, saying, quote, you men, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. We think about saying that to a Jew. You are uncircumcised. You, st- you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Christ, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Boy, that's, that's conviction. That's courage. He's going to tell them, go and tell them things about the righteous one uh, that he knows the prophets before him were stoned. What's going to happen to Stephen? He knew going in. Great conviction and courage. Uh, we'll examine him and, and his speech much, much more closely next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, as you are mighty and powerful to achieve 
of all things. We are most indebted uh, to the fact that you sent your son, uh, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins on the cross. And that through being sanctified through his body and through his blood, once for all, a sacrifice uh, that never needs to be repeated and never can. Father, we have, we, have, we have accepted that eternal redemption that you've promised from the ages past. We praise you. We, we thank you for our Lord. We look forward to the day that he will return, that he will reign with justice on all the earth, that we can see him face to face, worshiping him uh, upon his throne. Father, we... We'd ask that you'd make haste that day. Uh, as we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Still, there's work to do. And even if this would be the last day before he comes, Lord, uh, make us useful to you for the glory of him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>